They're coming to get you, Barbara. You're tearing me apart! I'm Charles Foster King! You're at heart a sentimentalist. Welcome to the Cult Movies Podcast, where we talk about underseen films, lesser-known gems, and unrecognized masterpieces maligned and panned by audiences and critics alike. This is episode number seven, and I'm very pleased to introduce my guest from F This Movie and Criterion Collectors Podcast, Rosalie Lewis. How are you, Rosalie? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Like I like I said just uh, you know 60 seconds ago, you are. Um, going to be sort of my go-to noir person uh through this journey of 200 movies um and of course you know if if uh, i'm lucky enough to have you come back on you can choose whatever movie you want but when you threw out this movie um you know in the options of three i think you sent back i was like oh like we got to do noir and uh like the the latest piece you just did for at this movie the the um uh, the the signs, the zodiacs, or what are they called? Astrological signs. Astrological signs, yeah. uh, lined up with a certain noir uh, is crazy because my my wife uh, for the past few months has starting to get into tarot and doing readings for people and and really getting into this stuff and I was like, oh my gosh. And so we are going, we're planning on uh, watching each of our movies this coming week, which is going to be really fun. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you'll have to let me know how you like them. Yeah, it uh, so it was so cool. Such a clever, clever idea. But uh, uh, for anyone listening that has not listened to any previous episodes, let me explain what we do here. The show is born out of film critic Danny Perry's uh, books, cult movies, one, two, and three. Now, each episode, uh, I have the guest pick a movie from cult movies, and then we discuss that movie, and then we wrap up the show by offering up uh, movies that we would pair with said movie that we had just discussed. Um, and so it should be a lot of fun. Um, and we're going to begin like we have uh, every episode thus far. Rosalie, how do you define cult movie? Okay, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I still was like, how do I define a cult movie? Um I guess I would say for me, a cult movie is something that may not be beloved by everyone, but the people who do love it, love it dearly and will defend it against all detractors. For me, it can be a movie that is flawed, but takes big swings. It could be a movie that didn't do very well, you know, when it first came out, but it has found an audience since then. Or it could be a movie that represents an underrepresented subgroup of, you know, people or sensibilities or ideas that just don't get a lot of mainstream attention. And I find that often for me, I'm drawn to these cult movies because 
they feel like they're mine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's something where you get that personal connection and you may not necessarily be able to put your finger on it, but when you meet somebody else that likes this movie, you're like, okay, we can speak the same language. Like you're, you're a person that is on my level. So in some ways they're almost a, a way to, you know, have a new vocabulary about the world in a way. I think that's really what, what cult movies mean to me. For sure. Yeah. I think you, you know, you develop uh, a sort of special kinship with at least one other person over um, a certain movie uh, that is, yeah, like, like you said, kind of uh, underseen or undervalued. And uh, yeah, that's perfect. I love it. Uh, you know, I, I say it every episode, but I love hearing everybody's uh, definition of a cult movie because it's such a, you know, I think it's such an individual term that uh, only only one person can define it for, you know, themselves. I think it's really interesting to think of it. And like when you watch a movie, I think that's the way you should watch movies. You know, you're not watching movies uh, for how does, how is this going to play, you know, for general audiences. You know, we're not producers. We're not in film distribution. Uh, you know, I think we are meant to, and with any art, sit and... Uh, consume the art and have it affect you how it's going to affect you not how it's going to affect the whole the whole crowd the whole theater the whole gallery whatever um so i, I think you're exactly right um okay so rosalie why don't you introduce what movie you chose for this episode absolutely so the movie i chose for this episode is one of my all-time favorite film noirs, and that is 1955's Kiss Me Deadly, directed by Robert Aldrich, adapted from the Mickey Spillane novel of the same name. And the screenplay is partially by Aldrich, but also by A.I. Bizardes, who definitely made some changes to the novel. And it centers on Mike Hammer, who's a private investigator, um, and he gets kind of involved in something. He gets a little in over his head, shall we say, <laughs> to say the least, um, when he picks up a female hitchhiker in the middle of the night who has escaped from a mental hospital and uh, things just spiral out from there. So as he begins to try to weave his way through and understand why she's being sought after, why she was on the run, he gets you know further and further down this very strange trail that leads to a very surprising and unusual ending, which <laughs> we will get into. Yeah, it. Uh, I I do want to say up front, we're probably going to spoil this. Um, and uh, if I'm glad that, so I watched this for the first time just I don't know a couple weeks ago, and then I watched it again the other night. Um, but I'm glad I knew nothing about this movie because when that ending hit. Uh, the first time I was watching it, I was like, what in God's name is going on here? This is insanity. Yeah. Uh, but before I forget, uh, let me uh, read a little something from Danny here. This is how he wraps up his essay on Kiss Me Deadly. This is his last paragraph. He says, this is no longer a free America. By the way, this this paragraph here is going to spoil the shit out of the movie. So uh, he says, brutes who like jazz and, and the blues and gangsters who listen to horse races and boxing matches are in charge and rule the and rule by muscle. Culture is on the way out as these barbarians take over. Trivaco, who sings opera badly, is beaten. Velda, who practices ba ballet exercises badly, is used by the man she loves as if she were a hooker and he were her pimp. 
Christina, the most likable character in the film, who appreciates poetry, classical music, and art, is eliminated. Intellectuals, Soberin, are killed, and the fate of the world rests on the shoulders of stupid Gabrielle. It is relevant that Aldridge did away with the uh, narcotics angle of the book and replaced it with a radioactive bomb. It is much more unnerving because the seeds of our destruction have been planted by our government, who uh, who built the bomb. The men in charge of America's security, Altridge believes, are in reality leading us to an apocalypse. Uh, and I, you know, he has some more interesting things maybe to say in the essay, but I thought uh, that really summed up the film and uh, summed up what I did not get the first time I watched this. When was the, when was the first time you saw this, Rosalie? First time I saw this was at a Noir City Festival at the Music Box in Chicago, introduced by the great Eddie Muller. And so, you know, he prepared us a little by saying that this had a very unexpected ending. And then, of course, afterwards kind of came up and talked through it a bit more. But, yeah, it definitely took me by surprise. And it took me a second to figure out how I felt about it. But it also made me want to watch it again and again because, for one thing, these characters are unforgettable. And also it's a movie that lends itself to revisits because you get to pick up on little things here and there. The dialogue comes through really strongly and the overall message, if you know, you can call it that from this movie is one that still feels relevant in a lot of ways. So maybe not the literal fear of the bomb, but certainly a fear that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and the wrong people are in charge. Um, something that maybe some people could still relate to. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, after um, uh, I had listened to uh, Mike White's episode of the project- Projection Booth on uh, Kiss Me Deadly and then, uh, you know, did some reading up on it uh, and then watched it again, and I thought, my God, this seems like um, a perpe- uh, um, relevant uh no matter what time period you're living in, I feel like. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because if you go a little bit outside the context of the film itself and think about the writers, Mickey Spillane um, definitely was known to be a conservative guy. You know, he sort of writes this a bit uh, toxic masculine character of Mike Hammer, who, don't get me wrong, I still love the character, but he's (laughs) definitely a misogynist. He's possibly a sadist. He's definitely got a lot of issues going on up there um, and not particularly sympathetic to women. And so, you know, on that end of the spectrum, Spillane is this very old school conservative guy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Bazarides, who is the screenwriter, and he was blacklisted in Hollywood. He was very well known to be a liberal and you know, people suspected that he was a communist at one point. So he definitely injected his own politics in here. And he has famously talked about how, you know, he didn't like the book. And so he wrote it, wrote the screenplay really quickly and injected things into it so that it sort of uh, satirizes the Mike Hammer character instead of glamorizing him. And I think this movie is very effective at that when it blows it all up at the end, because it seems like, you know, Bizarities is more on the side of intellectuals should be running things and not these thuggish brutes like Mike Hammer who are just going to fuck everything up. Yeah, it um, 
you know, we uh, maybe we're going to talk about it uh, later, but um, Spillane actually played Mike Hammer in a movie, and that was the first time I like saw him and his mannerisms, and uh, that comes through what you just said of Spillane that comes through in his and he's of course he's not a good actor but that comes you could tell uh this guy was like into he glamorized that type of stuff now now did you did you read the book is that right so I got the book I've read the first four chapters I didn't get all the way through it because uh I was kind of having a heavy work week but um it's you can already tell that there's just a different sensibility and it definitely comes from, I mean, everything you're inside of hammer's head in the book. So it's not going to be, you know, making him out to be the bad guy in any way. Right. Um, okay. So the movie, uh, kind of opens with an almost cold open besides the, uh, you know, the MGM logo and the, the lion coming out. Um, with uh turns out this is Cloris Leachman's very first movie role uh and she she's running down uh you know a highway in the middle of the night and she's trying to flag down cars and she almost runs Mike Hammer off the road and it's a very jarring opening uh because you're kind of like what the hell's going on here uh you know you, you kind of know um okay this guy is going going to be our guy um, and I don't think, uh, we, oh no, uh, it, it, before the credits roll, we, we still don't know his name. Uh, the, the credits roll and the, and it's, is that the Nat King Cole song that plays? Um, yeah. but it, it's, it's just so jarring. The first time I watched this, I thought, wait a minute, did I miss something like a chapter or did I miss something here? Uh, because I mean, you're in it immediately and um, I really, really love that because it, already you feel anxious. Like, what the hell's going on here? Well, yeah, because the anxiety gets amped up all the more just by listening to the sounds of the movie. Yep. Because you have, you know, Cloris Leachman barefoot running there, running along the highway, almost getting hit by a car. Then he grumpily opens the door for her and says that she nearly wrecked his car. And he talks about maybe throwing her off a cliff and says, let me guess, you were out with a guy who thought no was a three-letter word. And he just seems like he's such a mean guy. <laughs> this whole time, she's just like panting. She can't get her breath. She's she's like halfway screaming, halfway panting, and like completely discombobulated. And then you have the smooth voice of the radio announcer introducing the new Nat King Cole and even the song, I think, has some lyrics in it that are applicable. There's a line that says, I feel so mean and rot. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have the blues than what I've got. And I think that really sums up Mike Hammer. He's he's a mean, rotten guy. He is. And we'll get into it here in a little bit. But, uh, you know, he has he's almost like your typical antihero where he's you know, he's a complete dick and, uh, you know, a can be a real piece of shit. Uh, but there's something, whether it's his, you know, because he's so suave or because he's, he's so cool, you know, at least uh, me maybe watching it as a, as a guy just thinking, God, this guy's so cool. I don't want to be him. Cause I, I realize he's, he's a dick and a piece of shit, but he's just so cool. Um, but I, I think before, uh, things go really haywire, you know, within the first five minutes, 
uh, he does, you know, he's trying to sort of figure out, and, and, and by this, like, we still don't know that he's a private detective. And so he's kind of prying, figuring out, trying to figure out who this girl is that he just picked up. And, um, you know, it turns out, well, okay, this Christina, she escaped from the loony bin. And, uh, you know, the less you know, the better. And, you know, she says, you know what they say. And he goes, uh, what I don't know can't hurt me. And that kind of, and I, of course, I didn't get that the first time I watched it. But when I watched it again last night, I thought, okay. Uh, the the dialogue is really, really smart. I really love the script. Yeah, there's a lot of clues in there that you don't get the first time around. Now, uh, watching this as a um, completely sane and normal person um, who, first off, honestly, I probably would not pick up somebody trying to flag me down on the highway, um, and especially in 2021, uh, but... Uh, they stop at the gas station because he's got something wrong, like something under the tire, and, and she goes off to the bathroom and uh, fills out a note of some sort. And uh, and the first time I'm watching this, I'm thinking, go. You, you have plenty of time just to go. Leave her be. You can get out of this mess. Of course, we're watching a movie. It's a fictional story, and, and this isn't the way things are going to go. But, like, me watching this as a <laughs> as a sane person... I'm thinking, get the hell out of there immediately. I know this can't be any good. Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, Mike Hammer, who is expertly played by Ralph Meeker, just of all the Mike Hammer versions that I've seen, he's the best one by Mm -hmm. far. Um, But he, he has a certain empathy for Christina that endears him to the audience. And I think, you know, without that, So there's a moment where they're stopped at a police blockade, right? Because the cops are looking for this hitchhiker woman that's escaped. And he basically covers for her and says, oh, my wife's been asleep. So they get through. And obviously he didn't have to do that either. He could have just turned her over to the cops, but he didn't. So I think that in some ways is meant to endear him to us. um, And also sheds a little bit of light on whatever inner life there is of my camera that he does have at least a soft spot for a woman in distress. Um, and we see that over and over again, in some ways it's, it's his kryptonite. Right. So, um, you know, he does kind of want to help her. And then when things go even more off the rails, he wants to figure out why, you know, she met her demise. Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, you're exactly right how it's supposed to he, he it's supposed to kind of soften him up uh, for us as we're watching. Uh, but then there's other instances like, you know, he's, uh, you know, this is 1955. And so he is friendly to, you know, the the uh, African-American people at the bar, at the nightclub, the bartender and the, the club singer. Um, he's friendly to the, the Greek immigrant, you know, Nikki Vavavoom at the garage, um, you know, ends up saving his life. Um, and, you know, he's kind of always looking in. He never really, um, you know, besides maybe, uh, you know, grabbing a kiss here and there and of course using uh uh, what's her name veda velma velda velda um using her uh but like you know plenty of women come on to him but he doesn't go for it you know i think um and and you know to us we're supposed to think oh he's he's a gentleman and um you know maybe he is uh but i mean it really is just a device for the writers 
to, you know, tell the audience, okay, he's not the worst guy in the world. Right. We have to have somebody to root for, and he's the closest thing to it. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about Ralph Meeker for a second. He is uh, so cool, so good-looking. It doesn't matter, like, uh, you know, when he's all, you know, his hair's all, uh, you know, quaffed up or, or if it's all mussed up. I mean, there's not a single picture of him in this movie where he's he looks like shit. He looks good all the time. Um, and he's just so cool. Um, and, you know, just his voice, the way he reads the lines. Um, I mean, it's it's your typical, uh, you know, when you think P.I., this is who you're thinking of, right? Exactly. I mean, besides Humphrey Bogart, I can't think of a more iconic portrayal of the the PI on film. And I think Ralph Meeker's charisma goes such a long way. I mean, he's got the looks, he's got the, the smirk, you know, the little glint in his eye when he's torturing a bad guy or (laughs) trying to get information or, you know, just, he, he has that something that really without it, it's not going to be as good of a film. And I think, you know, if we get to some of the other adaptations of Mickey Spillane novels, we might get into why they Mm. don't work as well as this one um i think ralph meeker is a big reason for that yeah i think it's interesting like um you know he is a sadist he likes hurting people but on the other hand like there are i think he likes taking it i mean he's i think he's a classic sadomasochist Mm -hmm. um because and and i I don't know if it's a spillane thing or an aldrich thing or a, a berzides thing um or whatever it is, but they like showing him like when, when, um, uh, when he shows up, when hammer shows up to, um, Christina's uh, guy friend's apartment, the first time, like when the guy open cracks the door open, the camera like pushes in on the cut above Mike's eye. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I mean, it's so prominent. It's it that's, you know, Aldrich is saying, look at this cut. This is what you want to look at. And uh, Hammer comes in still cool and suave and almost like, look at me. I just got beat up a little bit um, and I like it. Or like when he's uh, towards the end, when they finally capture him, it's... <laughs> It's a very, uh, I I feel like it's a very sexualized thing where he's tied down by all fours to the bed. Yes. Face down and like he's spread eagle and it's a very uh, sexualized and they don't sexualize it. You know, the, the, you know, the kidnappers don't do anything to him uh, besides, you know, give him the sodium pentothal. But like just that, that, that picture of him spread eagle tied down face down to a bed is something that like really, really jumps out at me. And all I could think was, I bet Mike Hammer really, he's really enjoying this. Yeah. Well, he's actually tied to a bed twice in this movie because in the beginning, too. Oh, yeah. He's tied up when they capture him and Christina. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I do think there's something there, whether it's supposed to be a fetish or just a, a symbol of this tough guy that also has these vulnerable moments. But he definitely seems to be getting off on the pain, whether it's his or somebody else's. For sure. And now, now going back to that, that, uh, the first time he's tied up, that is, um, 
quite uh, jarring and kind of hard to sit through seeing Christina's and all we just see Mike. We see his face. Everybody else, we just see the feet. And we see, we hear Christina's shrieks of, of horror and she's hanging off the ground. Her feet are dangling while these men are torturing her. And uh, again, thinking this is 1955. This is quite, uh, It's it had to have been controversial. I know Aldrich had written a letter, like an op-ed to the New York Times or something like that, uh, explaining why it was so brutal. Yeah. Well, it certainly is controversial. And in the book, it goes a bit further and it, it implies that there is a potential sexual assault happening in that scene. And I feel like even though that's not spelled out in the movie, the way that she's screaming certainly makes you wonder what is happening that we aren't seeing. But it's definitely tough to sit through um, just the screams and the, you know, the pain that you can imagine is happening. The not seeing it makes it worse in a lot of ways. Oh, um, 100 percent. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my cats were in the room when that scene came on tonight and they ran down the hallway because they, I think, were bothered by the screaming. So if that tells you anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, I mean, this is a fairly brutal movie. Uh, like when um, Mike is where, oh, he's going to see Christina's guy friend. And he's walking down the sidewalk and, and there's another guy tailing him and he stops and gets the popcorn and, you know, Mike knows what's going on, but he stops and, you know, he hits this guy and he's, he's smashing this dude up against like his head. He's smashing his head up against the side of a, of, of a, of a, you know, cement building. And I mean, all I could think was this is so brutal. And then the guy, of course, he gets knocked out momentarily and like slowly slides down the building while his eyes, you know, are, are kind of looking up. I mean, it is. And then followed by Mike leveling him and then probably killing him and tossing him down, you know, the exorcist style staircase. Yeah, that's kind of one of the first glimpses you get that he does not fuck around. Um, and he has a smirk on his face again yes. in the situation where, you know, obviously his own life has been threatened because this guy was following him with a knife and, um, he takes him out in pretty over the top fashion and seems to be rather proud of himself. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, he's, uh, Ralph Meeker's got sort of, um, I mean, I kept seeing a young Bill Paxton. I don't know if, if that, yep. yeah. Right. And, you know, young Bill, I mean, I mean, Bill Paxton, when he passed away, he was, he, he was always a good looking guy, but I, you know, Bill Paxton always kind of had that perpetual smirk on his face, you know, uh, like one corner of his mouth was always crooked up a little bit. And I felt, I, I feel like Meeker's kind of like that throughout the whole movie. And to me, like that exudes coolness, like this guy, uh, you know, he's, he's down for whatever comes at him because he knows he can take it. He feels invincible. Um, and, you know, watching that, uh, you know, makes you feel, uh, again, I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but like, I just felt cool. You know, I was like, my camera's really cool. He's, again, he's a piece of shit, but you know, I, I wouldn't mind being as cool as my camera, you know? Exactly. He's a guy you want to cheer for against your entire <laughs> ethical moral code. Um, he reminded me a little bit too, not necessarily how he looks, but just his, his persona reminded me of a young Mel Gibson, mm. uh, the same sort of rugged aesthetic of like, this is a guy that you don't want to mess with. 
He's extremely charismatic. He's, you know, good looking. The ladies love him and he can take anything that comes to him. And he's just, you know, out for out for himself. Um, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, like the lethal weapon or even a little bit to some extent Mad Max, although I feel like Ralph Meeker is less tortured. But yeah. <laughs> Definitely reminded me a little bit of those early Mel Gibson movies. For sure. Well, that that, you know, Parker, I know um, Payback is a, you know, the is a remake um, of Point Blank, of course. But, you know, uh, Payback is one of my all time favorite movies. And and Parker, Mel Gibson playing Parker and that is is the same way. Like he's just he's he's willing to take whatever comes at him. Um, and I mean, I, I assume that uh, uh, Brian. Uh, oh, can't remember who directed that, but I'm 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 assuming they they took some um, you know, some inspiration from Meeker's uh, Mike Hammer from this, uh, in, applying it to Mel Gibson's character in uh, in uh, Payback. Yeah, I also feel like perhaps Dirty Harry may have been somewhat inspired. Mm, yeah, I don't know that for a fact, but that's another thing that came to mind in watching it is. You know, again, somebody who's not afraid to use a little torture to get the answers that he's looking for. And, you know, I think we have several generations worth of antiheroes that probably owe a lot to Ralph Meeker and to Mike Hammer. For sure. Well, and I, that's the fun thing about um, watching uh, older movies. And like, I mean, I primarily only watch older movies, you know, stuff before 1980. Um, and it's fun to see. Uh, you know, especially this stuff from the 30s, 40s and 50s that obviously had so much influence over so many, um, you know, uh, modern movies that I grew up watching and loving and, you know, watching these older movies and thinking, oh, OK, that's where this OK, this, you know, uh, give props where props are due, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, you can tell automatically that Quentin Tarantino watched this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second. So uh, we're jumping around here, but uh, I mean, there obviously there's a huge, right? I mean, are we are we saying Tarantino did the shiny briefcase thing from Pulp Fiction? Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I think he's possibly even gone on record and said as much. So I don't think it's a big surprise. Um, right. But yeah, briefcase that we don't know what's in it, but for some reason everybody wants it. And, you know, yeah, the contents are mysterious. That's definitely lifted from this movie. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's talk about the ladies of the movie. Um, so you have, uh, uh, um, Cloris Leachman in her first movie role. Uh, you have Maxine, um, what's her name? Maxine Cooper. Maxine she's, Cooper. Yeah, this is her first movie or two, right? She's also the best Velda, I must say. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, man, she is so good. Um, you know, she's uh, very sexy. She's very seductive. Um, but I feel like e even though like Mike is uh, totally, you know, pimping her out, basically, I feel like uh, you know she's still a. a pretty strong character she doesn't put up with this shit she'll talk back to him and i really appreciate that especially from a movie from 1955 yeah well let's talk a little bit about what her role is so velda is mike's secretary and he is the kind of private detective that basically is trying to break up marriages <laughs> he's a bedroom dick right that's what they call him so you know he gets dirt on the husbands by sending velda out to you know flirt with them and more and then, you know, 
the the cops ask, what about the wives? You know, and, and the implication is that Mike's hooking up with the wives. So even though that seems to be the dynamic, Velda and Mike are also sort of the one true pairing of the whole, you know, Mike Hammer series. Hmm. They seem to be in love with each other, even in other movies, you know, they they say as much. They say, I love you. They He calls her beautiful. You know, they, they are kissing a lot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting and unusual relationship. But you're right. She's the one person that can kind of talk him off a ledge or at least try to. Mm-hmm. And she's the one that critiques his whole involvement in this scheme. And she's constantly telling him, you should just leave it to the cops. You know, you're in over your head. And he should have listened to her, right? If he had yep. listened to her, it would be a much shorter movie. But um, she is definitely the voice of reason. And that voice is housed in a very gorgeous body. <laughs> yeah, well, and having been married for 11 years, uh, I, I can say that uh, that's usually the case. The the uh, The woman is always the voice of reason, uh, I have discovered in my in my life. yeah she is um i really love her character and again spoilers um i am you know i was relieved and thrilled that she made it because this this is the only well besides uh the the other movie that we'll probably talk about here um this is the this was the only mike hammer movie i had seen so i I didn't know that she was kind of, you know, these are recurring characters. I, I didn't even realize that there was like a series of Mike Hammer um, films and TV shows. Uh, so the the first time I watched this the movie ended and I was like, oh, my God, we used to watch the the. Um, oh, now, of course, I can't. Stacy Keach. Yeah, Stacey Keach. Mike Hammer. Yes. Oh, my God. We used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. Um, and so I realized, oh, my God. OK, so this is like a thing it's been around forever everybody's done my camera yeah it's interesting because again you know Bazirides had to adapt this and so he did do something different from the book but at the same time this was a hugely best-selling book before it was a movie and so he did to some extent have to give them who they were expecting in my camera I think he delivered it and I've heard some conflicting reports about whether you know, Spillane eventually came around to saying this actually was a good adaptation. He didn't like that it was changed, but he did come around to saying like Ralph Meeker was the best hammer. So I think, you know, begrudgingly, he has to admit that the movie was a success. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a fabulous movie. Now, uh, it's a, man, I, it's a great LA movie. I love uh, movies that feature, you know, the town uh, as one of, you know, the characters. And this is a great LA movie. And I know oh. Spillane usually sets his, like the book is set in New York, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's, the book is set in New York. And it's funny because I watched three um, Mike Hammer movies. So I watched this one. I watched uh, My Gun is Quick and I watched Girl Hunters, which I'm sure we'll kind of talk about a little bit. Um, and they're all set in different kind of locations. But this one, I think, is the best. And it features a neighborhood in L.A. that doesn't exist anymore, Bunker Hill. Mm-hmm. A lot of that has changed. So it's really a cool, you know, snapshot of L.A. at that time. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you've ever seen the documentary L.A. Plays Itself, um, I think this is one of the ones that's featured in that. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, I have not seen L.A. Plays Itself, which is uh, an absolute crime. Um 
But yeah, it's man, it's so good because they're all over the place. They're, you know, it's like they're uh, they're driving um, down uh, Highway One. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah, highway, and then you know through downtown. I mean, they're everywhere. I love it so much. Um, now, uh, one of the um, oh, I. Something that jumped out at me uh, the second time I watched this was as the movie goes along, and this uh, this will come up uh, when we talk about our picks, but as the movie goes along, Mike gets tougher and tougher and tougher, and um, we really start to cheer for him and... Uh, as sort of an underdog because he's really starting to uncover some shit that shouldn't have been uncovered and he's in way over his head. Um, but he's, he's driven to a point where, you know, it, it becomes a, a rescue mission or a revenge plot, which most PI movies end up being anyways. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I really liked we see a character transformation, and I think that's what you need to see in, in most good stories, a transformation of character. But as he becomes tougher, he becomes more likable, or or maybe we're just cheering for him because he's he's in super deep shit. I don't know. what what Did you pick up on that at all? Yeah, so I think part of the reason that we are cheering for him is that we're seeing the people that are close to him getting impacted more and more by his actions, whether that's, you know, Velda getting kidnapped or his friend Nick, you know, being targeted or, you know, all the all the carnage around him. And we get the feeling that he's next. And it does start to feel like Mike against the world. And we don't really know what the, the whole driving element is, the great what's it, as Velda so mm-hmm. eloquently puts it. But we get the sense that, you know, Mike is up against some really bad guys and maybe he is the one that's fighting for the more righteous cause, even though his cause is really just to avenge the death of this girl he knew for like 15 minutes. Yeah. So Christina, at the beginning, she says something um, about, you know, Mike is the most important person in Mike's life. Yeah. And. Um, that becomes apparent as we start to get to know Mike Hammer. Um, and we see that, you know, he pushes women away and, um, but as you know, his friends start dying and disappearing like that to me softens him up a little bit. And he's, he's got this drive to him. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a character thing, you know, uh, within the script that, you know, it's he grows he was this selfish me 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 type of guy at the very beginning but then realizes okay i have to go save velda you know at the very end and and uh you know i I don't know that i think for now i like cheering on bad guys i like um you know the anti-hero um and if you know if they don't get any sort of redemption at the end of a movie that doesn't make me like the movie any less um or make make me like the character any less uh but i really did appreciate the sort of redemption mike ends up getting by you know risking his life and going in and rescuing velda and you know all that stuff 
Yeah, I do too. I think that he does get a redemptive arc to some extent, even though ultimately we know that a lot of this stuff probably wouldn't have happened if he hadn't pursued it so doggedly in the beginning. But the fact that he cares enough to go and put his own life on the line to rescue Velda and to stop certain events from happening, whether successful or not, you know, that says a little bit more for his character and who he is underneath all the bluster. For sure. Now let's uh, let's get to the ending here. Um, it goes off the rails, I will say. Um, if again, if if not uh, knowing anything about this going in, it. I mean, I thought, what the hell is going on here? And uh, I mean, it looks like what Danny was saying. It it differs greatly from the book, where the book is there talking about like the gangsters uh, running drugs or whatever and this (laughs) this is talking about uh, uh, nuclear capabilities yeah so I guess the first glimpse you get that this is not your average ordinary noir movie is when they get the key that Christina swallowed from the guy at the morgue who he slams the hand in the drawer (laughs) and seems to enjoy the hell out of that Um, They take this key to the Hollywood uh, Athletic Club, and then he shakes down the guy that's at reception there and beats him up. And then they open the locker and, you know, there's this strange box inside. And when Mike opens it up, there's this bright light that comes out. His hand gets burned and there seem to be voices coming from it. Right. Yeah, uh, that's the beginning of it. And it just gets even crazier from there. Um, it seems to be a literal Pandora's box. He's told by the cop, Pat, that, you know, words like the Manhattan Project are in play. And that's all he needs to know to know that he really shouldn't be involved. And he seems to back away a little bit. But right. then, you know, um, it turns out that the the bad guys have kidnapped Velda, the lady that he thought he was protecting, Lily, who, by the way, is um, really well played, although I feel like if I first met a woman and she was pointing a gun at me, I wouldn't expect the end to be much different, but that's how that goes. Um, Gabby Rogers is the one that plays her and I think she's wonderful. So good. Um, but yeah, so he, he's involved with the wrong people. And by the, by that time it's kind of too late to turn back. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, we talked about, uh, Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, uh, with the bright shining light coming from the briefcase. Um, and there's a little bit, uh, not a little bit, there's a lot of bit of um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yes? Yeah, very true. <laughs> I would say so, yes. I mean, it. we're talking, and, and again, uh, I will say it, 1955, like they explode an entire house. It's, it's quite impressive. Yeah. A, we see a woman consumed by flames from opening a box. Brutal. I mean, it is brutal. You see, I mean, obviously it's a, you know, it's a, it's a mannequin or a dummy, but uh, yeah, it is, it is so weird. So uh, the first time I watched this, um, I think uh, I saw the, the you know, uh, Mike opens the box, the bright light comes out, he burns his hand, you hear like screaming it it is and i was like okay supernatural um and then something when i was watching this took my attention away for like 
I don't know, 10 seconds when Mike and Pat, when Pat's telling Mike, uh, Pat is, uh, by the way, uh, sort of Mike's uh, police liaison kind of contact guy. But uh, Pat tells Mike, uh, you know, he drops these words like Los Alamos and, and Manhattan Project. And the first time I watched this, I missed that. And I mean, it's real fast. And I mean, I don't know what the heck was going on, but I missed it. Missed 10 seconds. And so I was completely lost. And so at the end, like she's, con- she opens the box and she's consumed by fire and like this screaming. And, and I was like, oh my God, is this like some sort of like demonic or ghost? Like, uh, <laughs> this is some sort of supernatural, like noir. This is crazy. But then watching it again last night, I'm like, oh, you freaking moron. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's still wild as shit, but I don't think we're dealing with ghosts or demons here. Yeah, no, no demon possession, but it certainly has that supernatural, almost horror element to it because it goes to such a dark place and it goes to such an extreme. And I, I don't know if you watched the alternate ending, aka the ending that apparently played in most theaters, but the original ending, well, I say original, not the director's cut. Somehow a few seconds got cut out of the director's cut in certain theaters. And so it ends with the house blowing up with Mike and Velda inside. They don't. Oh. Escape. And so we're meant to think that. And it just says the end over the flames as they're bursting out of the house. So it's a much darker ending. That's what audiences in 1955 saw. And then they uncovered like 82 seconds of footage and restored it for the DVD that have them, you know, coming out and going into the ocean. But in, in either case, it's definitely playing into those fears about a nuclear holocaust or, you know, the Cold War. Yes, yes the Cold War, yep. Yeah, and so, you know, I mean, in a very literal sense, it's about that. And you definitely don't get that with any other noir I've seen. No, it. yeah, it's, uh, you know, there is... I feel like the, you know, when I watch this, I will be coming back to this uh, several times. This is a great movie. Uh, but there is so much to pick apart and uncover that, that you know, you can only grab so much um, upon a single watch. And so I think a movie like this uh, deserves uh, several rewatches so you can really start to dissect it and see what uh, Be- uh, Bezer, what's the writer's name? Uh, Bizarities. Bizarities and like Aldrich were kind of feeling uh, what people were feeling at this you know time they're probably writing in 1954 53 54 and you know what the what the country was really feeling like then um, and I think it's really interesting uh, the direction that it takes and I'm still a little in shock about that uh, original ending that people saw in the theater yeah. uh, that is insane like so uh, going back to what I was saying about, you know, the redemption and all that kind of stuff, um, I, having not seen that ending where everybody dies, um, I, I kind of really want to see that because I think I would really enjoy, enjoy that ending. That is yeah. insane. It's insane. And if you think about it, so I don't know what version was available when Danny Perry wrote his book and wrote that entry, but I'm curious to see which version he saw. Oh, that's interesting. Um, let me see. I, let me, he writes the, the time. Let's see. It was in 1955. 
Oh, no, it doesn't write the time. 105 minutes. Okay. Um, I don't know if that means anything to you. Well, it might, because the running time that's officially on Wikipedia is 106 minutes, so that could account for a minute less. I don't know. Um, I don't remember specifically when the extra footage was unearthed, but... Okay, so... Uh, what did I say? 105 is yeah okay so yeah imdb says 146 huh yeah that's really interesting um this is is this is a criterion release yes it is a criterion release although sadly i don't own it yet yeah me neither next on my list i have um an older dvd that i picked up you know at a record shop a long time ago sure. and I've watched the hell out of it, but yeah, if you look on, well, the original DVDs does have the original ending as well. Oh, um, cool. It's like the only bonus feature <laughs> other yeah. than the trailer, and you can also find it on YouTube, so definitely check oh, that out. Oh my God, okay, I'm doing that as soon as we hang up. This is crazy. Yeah. crazy. And I just looked it up, so the original conclusion was restored in 1997, so. Oh, wow, okay, so uh, Danny didn't see that. Yeah. That Okay, so that kind of, so his essay is, um, pretty bleak and uh, cynical like that because uh, you know what I read was the very last paragraph of his essay and he ends with the sentence um, you know uh, the men in charge of America's security Aldridge believes are in reality leading us to an apocalypse so this completely makes sense because I, I'm reading that thinking Danny were you super pissed off when you were writing were you in a bad mood or something and he's writing about the end where everybody fucking dies that's crazy yeah exactly it's pretty it's pretty crazy oh my gosh uh, I love it <laughs> changed the tone of the movie completely and yes of course my camera came back in subsequent movies but it's not like the movies were necessarily connected, connected right yeah so um you know. And if you think about it, Mickey Spillane's original version of Mike Hammer was Mike Danger, who was a comic character, because Mickey Spillane's original career was writing comic books, some of the earliest comic books. Huh. So he wrote, like, Captain America and, you know, a bunch of other really big names before he got started writing pulp novels. So, you know, it's it's he's a guy that could come back from the dead, I'm sure, anyway. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, man, I really want to read uh, the novel, and I really need to see this original ending. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I cannot recommend uh, this movie highly enough. This is so good. It's another one of those, uh, like last week with Lola Montez. Uh, I watched it for the first time, and it was a three-star movie. And then I watched it again, and it became a four-star movie. And the same exact thing with Kiss Me Deadly. I watched it. It was a three-star movie. And then two weeks later, it became a four-star movie. Um, you know, I think it, it's just so rich in I mean, the sound design, the music, the, the, the photography, the acting, the story. I mean, there's just so much to really pull out of this movie. It's great. Yeah, there's a lot of really great characters in this movie. We've spent a lot of time, obviously, talking about Mike Hammer and Ralph Meeker um, playing him. But I want to also talk about some of the other characters. Yes. Very briefly, Nick, a.k.a. Vava Boom. So Nick is his mechanic, and he's a Greek uh, mechanic. He speaks with a Greek accent. The, the actor who portrayed him, uh, Nick Dennis, actually was Greek, spoke Greek. So an early representation of actual, mm -hmm. like, correct Hollywood casting. Um, and the reason there's so much about cars and 
you know, classic cars and, you know, cars zooming around. That was all Bazzardi's. He was a huge car fanatic. Okay. He used to work in the auto industry himself. And so he brought that sensibility and those sort of hobby things to the movie. And I just love the character of Nick. He's a fun guy. He's so cheerful. He's not a caricature. He totally could be. But I feel like he's, you know, as much as we see him on screen, he's developed fairly well. He's a sympathetic dude. Mm-hmm. Mike out, you know. Um, and he has his little Vavavoom catchphrase, but it's not used to make fun of him in any way. It's just, you know, like his little catchphrase. Well, the, yeah, uh, you, you can tell this dude is like, he loves cars. And like, and the thing with the cars, like Mike drives, I don't know, a, a handful of different really cool cars. I'm not a car guy myself, but, you know, I noticed every time he's driving a different, really hot looking car. But like, you know, Nick's into that. You like, he sees Mike's new black, whatever it is out front. And, and, you know, before he starts it, Mike runs out and saves his friend's life. And like, again, that softens Mike up to us. But, uh, you know, when, when Nick does die, uh, and again, uh, reminiscent of, um, uh, Refn's drive when Brian Cranston dies. Right. And, uh, but like, that that's kind of the the revenge driving point where Nick turns and he's like, "You killed basically my only friend, right?" Nick is yeah. his only friend. It's true. He he has a lot of acquaintances in his life, but Nick seems to be one of those genuine friends that you know was there for him, and you know they have good times together. Like Nick is out there, like, "Oh, I'm going to drive his car around the block before he comes out of the house. This is nice," you know, right? Like they definitely seem to have a really good relationship. And um, I was, <laughs> I was wondering watching it this time. So they disarm one bomb and then they drive to the mechanics shop and they're, and, and you know, hammers like there's another one, let's look for it. And so they, they look and they find that it was connected to the speedometer. And he says, you know, if you took this car out to the country and you went faster, the bomb would go off. And I'm like, it's speed. Speed. Like, speed. Yes. <laughs> So I don't know if that was an actual influence on speed or not, but in my mind it is. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things in this movie. You could tell, I mean, this is, I don't know why I'd never even heard of it until I got Danny's book a couple years ago um, and hadn't watched it until two weeks ago, three weeks ago. um, Because obviously like this is a major movie uh, for so many filmmakers today because they have, you know, I don't want not ripped it off, but, you know, homaged it uh, plenty. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many little side characters that aren't even really important to the story that it still showcases what life was like in this neighborhood and with these people. And it's a very cosmopolitan world. You mentioned, you know, that Mike goes to the nightclub where there's, you know, mm. black bartender and, you know, black performers and things like that. So he's into sort of the jazz blues scene. He also goes to a gym mm. and talks to an informant there. And that scene in particular, I love the shot. It's a really long shot that starts out. You're not even sure why you're in there, but the camera starts on a guy who's, you know, in this boxing area and then follows him down the stairs and then backs up and follows Mike as he comes up the stairs and follows him into the gym. And it's like one long shot. And I feel like that was fairly um, unheard of for the time too. So little touches like that, but you know, you see him interacting with these people that are from all different walks of life, whether they're Italian or Greek or African American. And 
you know, he talks to them all the same and, you know, yes, he's kind of a, a, <laughs> a bad dude sometimes, but he also has this very human element of approaching people, you know, the same way. And I like that. And then there's one great scene early on where he sees an old guy that's carrying mm. a trunk on his back that's like strapped to his head and he just like gently lifts it and helps him like walk up the stairs. And it's an old, old man who really in my mind should never be carrying a trunk in the first place. I don't know how he doesn't fall over backwards with the weight of that thing. Um, but that was just a little nice moment. And like, that's not something we see anymore. I didn't know that people used to move by like strapping trunks to their heads. But certainly they did. And this movie lets us see a little bit of that. Yeah. It's, you know, again, Mike is, <clears throat> he's always kind of, uh, I don't want to say looking out for the little guy, but, um, He's he seems to be on the side of, um, I don't know the for I don't know forgotten people or I I don't know something, um you know women, uh you know African Americans uh the the boxing guy was a uh, you know uh, probably I don't know some sort of you know maybe he was Dominican or he was some sort of uh, Latino, um, mm -hmm. older people he was always, um you know, looking out for them and helping them. And yeah, that is, it is a very touching scene real quick. Uh, when, you know, when he does meet that Italian guy that's moving that trunk with his back and he gets up to the door and, and the kind of nosy wife sticks her nose out and she, you know, what do you want? And she keeps questioning Mike and the lady's quiet husband is there. And Mike looks at the guy and he says, tell her to shut up. And the guy rolls his eyes and he goes, shut up. <laughs> cracks me up so funny and you know that's of course painting um you know your kind of stereotypical um nosy wife um but it is very funny in a movie that um you know doesn't have a uh, much comedy in it yeah there certainly are funny moments and a lot of that i feel like comes from the dialogue you know yep. there's so many great lines in this movie i liked when Christina is, you know, kind of talking about how Mike is in love with himself. And she says, I bet you're the kind of guy that does push-ups every morning just to keep his belly hard. You know, she's like totally <laughs> taking side of him. And you know, even, even some of the lines that aren't necessarily meant to be funny, they're so clever that it, get, it gets a laugh out of me. Like when Velda, you know, is worried about Mike after he's, he's been hospitalized because he's already been an attempt on his life. And they're in his house and she says, stay away from the windows. Somebody might want to blow you a kiss. I just love lines like yeah. that for that. That's film noir to me is those kinds of lines. Um, and, you know, then, okay, we didn't talk about this scene, but the pool scene, the scene where he goes to the house and there is this girl there. His name is Friday. It's literally his girl Friday. I don't know if that's intentional, but anyway. Um, and she's like, Oh, you can be my friend. I have lots of friends. You can be a very good friend. And he's, it's just like, I don't know what her function is, but I loved it. Even well, it's, it's so funny. Yes. Yeah, she comes up in immediate and they, Mike and this girl are complete strangers. They've never seen each other. And he gets out of the car. She's coming on to him and they immediately kiss. Yes. And then they start walking away and she stops and she turns and she goes, second or does he say it or she one of them says seconds and the other one says yeah. okay and then they kiss again it's so funny it is 
Yeah, you definitely get the sense that like women just flock to this guy. I mean, every woman he meets makes out with him at some point. This movie. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, when um, he finds uh, who was Christina's roommate? What's her name? Uh, Lily slash Gabrielle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She um, he walks in and you know she's like, "How did you find me?" And I just love the way Mike says this, or Ralph Meeker says this. He goes, uh, um, picked up a thread. Anyone can do it. Just like so casual. Like, like he's not, he doesn't take himself too seriously as a private detective. I think he takes himself seriously as a man, but not as a private detective. And like that, you know, it, it is the dialogue. You pay attention to the dialogue and you're going to pick up so much stuff from it. Yeah. This movie also has a lot of references. So you mentioned that Christina references a poem and she talks about being named after Christina Rossetti, who actually is a poet that um, I don't know that a lot of people in the 50s necessarily would have heard of. I certainly think people now probably don't really know who she is necessarily. But, you know, she was a poet in the 1800s and even though her poem, which gets read in the movie, Remember Me, doesn't get a ton of play and we don't still really understand it, I still don't know how Mike knew that Christina swallowed a key from reading that poem. Um, <laughs> so it's like another example, and I think Danny Perry wrote about this very well, that she was one of these people that clung to culture and you know more classical things, right? And right. you do have the example of the... Italian guy he goes to visit who's singing the opera and he snaps the record in half. And, you know, it, it is a constant. And we hear that, you know, Christina listened to the classical music station. They say, oh, she was always listening to that station. There's classical music playing. And there's another guy that Mike goes to visit and it says, you know, Museum of Modern Art on the front door. And there's all these art pieces in there. So it is certainly a very literal conflict between kind of the high and low culture and the move world moving away from the more classical influences. Yeah. Well, it, you know, that's kind of Robert Aldridge was more of, um, almost exploitation, you know, director, you know, whatever happened to baby Jane and the dirty dozen attack, um, you know, the Frisco kid, uh, choir boys, uh, especially Charlotte. Yeah. The longest yard, you know, it's, um, borderline exploitation. Um, and so, but, you know, I, I think little touches like that, you know, he was, I, I could see him reading uh, the script and thinking, I can, you know, um, put a little bit of my classy side in here, you know? I, yeah, know, I know stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think um, it's also a nod to the audience. Like, if they can pick up on that, then they can also feel like, oh, yeah, this is referencing something I've heard of before. Oh, for sure. There's also... Even the bad guys kind of talk a big game. Like some of them seem to be quoting the Bible at times. There's one that's talking about Greek mythology and Medusa and Pandora. Yeah. And so this movie wears it, its references on its sleeve. But I love that about it because you can go down a lot of different rabbit holes if you want to. Like just tonight I was reading up more about Christina Rossetti and she has a really famous poem about the goblin market where these two sisters go and the goblins are tempting them with all these like tasty treats and then the the price for eating from them is potentially like you know death and so i felt like even that might be possibly an illusion that this movie picked up on without actually staying it because 
there's a character here who wants, who just can't help herself, even though she knows there's danger involved. She's got to open the box. What's in the box? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That Pandora. Is it, is it, is that in this, are you sure your name's not Pandora? Yep. Is it, that's in this movie, right? It is. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Another super funny line. Now, uh, I want to throw something out there. Um, maybe it's nothing and we can just pretend I didn't say anything, but there are a lot of stares in this movie. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Mike, you know, beats that guy up and he throws him down the stairs or when he's going to Gabrielle's apart, uh, before she's Gabrielle, but, uh, he has to climb this huge staircase to get to, you know, her, you know, it's a, it's sort of like a row apartment, um, you know, helping the old guy up the stairs to the, to the house there. Um, I, I don't know why, but that stuff really jumped out to me. Uh, and I don't know if, if it would mean anything or if, you know, maybe it was just location shooting. I don't know. Uh, but th- that stuff really stood out to me on this rewatch. Hmm. I didn't pick up on that, but I like where you're going with it. That definitely could be something deeper there. I mean, you know, whether you're talking about like the seven levels of hell or, you know, maybe it's an allusion to these people constantly moving up and down the ladder of, of society. You know, I think about Parasite and all the stairs in that movie and when hmm. people climbing up you know, to try to improve their station in life, but then they end up just going back down to the depths. And so I could certainly see a connection there for sure. Yeah. Like how he, you know, when he, he ends up throwing this goon down a long ass flight of stairs. Um, and then, but ends up having to climb these stairs to, to meet this supposed angel, you know, that is going to have all the answers for him, uh, you know, in Christina's roommate. I, I don't know. I, I just thought it was real interesting. Again, this movie has so much stuff in it that deserves multiple watches. And, and you know, you, you will get, you know, you're just going to pick out stuff every time you watch this. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those movies that has so much metaphor and so much literal you know, things that would normally be a metaphor are very literal, like the fact that the in the ending, the world blows up, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot buried in this movie that if you watch it once, you'll get the face value. But if you keep watching, you're going to unearth a lot more pieces that I think make it even more special. And again, that goes back to what we were talking about of what makes it a cult movie. This is one of those movies mm. that really rewards obsessive rewatching and really rewards people for digging deeper into it and not just watching it and be like, yeah, that was a movie. You know, I, God, that is, that carries a lot of weight, what you just said. And going back to Parasite, you know, personally, I know Parasite was, you know, the best picture Oscar winner, blah, blah, blah. I still kind of consider Parasite a cult movie. And Mm -hmm. I, I know it's, you know, it's essentially brand new, but, you know, again, I think you're right it deserves uh, so many rewatches because there's so many layers to it. And I think, uh, you know, a cult movie uh, innately uh, has that, has multiple layers. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's not just the layers that the movie intends to have, but the movie has layers that the audience brings to it, seeing it at different times and through different lenses. So, you know, I think of cult movies, like uh, Rocky Horror, right? That's the ultimate 
cult movie where maybe the people who made it didn't intend it this way, but it's come to mean something to, you know, queer audiences, for example. Um, But I think this is one of those movies, again, where we see it now and maybe we see it through today's political lens versus people that saw it in the 50s and we're seeing it through their very real fears of what could happen. And there's other earlier movies, especially film noir, where, you know, it was dealing with people coming home from the war and being afraid of Nazis and being afraid of communists. And so I think movies that play into our fears or that can make us feel a little better about some aspect of life that we have insecurities about, those tend to become cult movies. 100%. That is beautifully stated. All right. Um, If you have nothing further on, I mean, we, we could spend another hour on uh, Kiss Me Deadly, but um, I'm really excited to get to our pairings if you're ready for that. I am ready. Okay, so I had asked Rosalie to come up with three movies uh, that she could pair with Kiss Me Deadly, and let's share those. Rosalie, let me hear your first one. All right. My first one is the last one I thought of, but as soon as I thought of it, I was like, yeah, this would be perfect. Mm-hmm. And the movie is Rampart from 2011. It stars Woody Harrelson, and it's based on a book by James Elroy, who, I don't know if you're familiar, has written a lot of you know crime novels and noir-adjacent stuff, so I think there's certainly oh, cool. there. Um, and it's sort of based on a real scandal that happened in L.A., around the 1990s um, and the LA police department was really corrupt at that time. Some might argue it still is, but certainly then it was extremely corrupt and it follows one of those corrupt officers played by Woody Harrelson. And the cast is just incredible. I mean, you have Steve Buscemi, Sigourney Weaver, Cynthia Nixon, Anne Heche, Ned Beatty, uh, Robin Wright, you know, all these really talented people. Ice Cube is in it. Um, And it follows this guy who, similarly to my camera, I would say is certainly not a typical guy you'd want to root for, but he's really, you know, one of these anti-heroes who you watch it and you're like cringing, but you also can't look away. And I think that is what makes me think this would be such a good double feature because we've now had, you know, 60, 70, 80 years of the anti-hero. And there's been a lot of conversation around it especially in recent years of has that been good or bad for the culture i am of the opinion that it could be you could take it either way but i think this movie interrogates that a little bit further in a lot of ways the way that i think bizarities was trying to in some ways interrogate the whole notion of is mike a good guy or not so i think this is a great entertaining movie but it's also a movie that feels very of the moment even though it came out 10 years ago right yeah i think well I think, unfortunately, um, cop movies, um, especially, you know, when exploring dirty cops, uh, will forever be relevant, again, unfortunately. And, I, you know, I think uh, that's basically all Elroy writes about, and I love James Elroy. He's got such an interesting writing style that um, I hated at first, but after reading... Um, LA Confidential like getting through it I was like oh that was actually I really enjoyed how he put that together anyways you know so LA Confidential Dark Blue uh, which I think is a highly underrated uh, Ron Shelton Kurt Russell movie you you know he writes these sort of modern um, 
uh, noir films that will forever be relevant. And I can't believe I've never even heard of Rampart. I'm ashamed. This sounds fabulous. Well, from a guy who had the Neon Badges podcast, this is one you have to check out. Yeah. My God. I'm, yeah, I feel so stupid. I've never even heard of it. Um, love it. So Rampart 2011, you said? That is my first pick. Okay. Um, all right. I am going with, excuse me, uh, um, one of my, <laughs> what I did, I went with a PI theme here. So all of my movies are about private investigators and they're all from the 70s uh, because, I mean, you know, we all love movies from the 70s. So uh, my first pick is one that showed up on my top 10 discoveries of 2020 list uh, that uh, I wrote for F This Movie. And it was number eight, I believe. This is Jeremy Kagan's The Big Fix from 1978, uh, written by Roger Simon, who wrote the screenplay and the novel. Uh, but it stars Richard Dreyfus, Susan Anspach, Bonnie Bedelia, John Lithgow, uh, F. Murray Abraham is in there in a f- super fun role. Uh, but it is about a P.I. named Moses Wine, possibly the greatest character name of all time, played by okay. Dreyfus. Um, he's an ex-hippie fundamentalist. Um, and so he's hired by an old girlfriend played by Anspach to uncover who is behind this like w- kind of weird smear campaign against this congressman she's working for. Um, and so he's he's working on that all the while juggling his two kids um, and an ex-wife played by Bonnie Bedelia, who is <laughs> dating this like weirdo self-help guru played by Ron Rifkin with a super bushy mustache. It's real fun to look at. Um, and you know, he likes to butt, butt in his nose, uh, you know, whenever he can, you know, Moses, are you feeling okay? I, I, I feel a lot of tension coming off of you, you know, that type of person. Uh, he's great. Love Ron Rifkin in this movie. Um, John Lithgow plays like the campaign manager, um, who has hired, Dreyfus. Uh, and then uh, F. Murray Abraham is in this. I'm not going to say who or what he plays. He's just fucking awesome in this movie. Um, I will say watching P.I. movies makes me want to be a private investigator. Um, but I am not a people person. I am not like nosy at all. I would be the worst private investigator ever. Uh, but you know, PI movies, I will never like, uh, after I write, uh, neon badges, I seriously, I'm seriously considering doing a PI movie book, which would be super fun. But, um, so, uh, I don't know, you know, you have a young, was this 1978, you know, young, uh, this is, you know, post, uh, um, Jaws post third, in, uh, uh, close encounters, but he's still young. He's still handsome. He's, you know, I think Richard Dreyfus was this really, um, you know, uh, my wife watched with me, but she just kept saying, he's so cute. And he <laughs> is like, he's cute. He's got, you know, the kind of gray, curly, you know, little Afro, but he is, he's just kind of cute and he's super fun. 
And, you know, I, I typically love all the characters that he plays because, um, you know, there's he puts so much energy behind his characters and and, you know, they, they just seem like fun people. I just wish he wasn't, you know, reportedly, you know, so difficult to work with on set. Um, but, you know, I I love, love Richard Dreyfus movies. Um, there's a scene in this movie where he and uh his friend go to jail to talk to uh this couple they're you know they're questioning people and it is so funny that they're sitting at this table they turn up the radio to cover up the conversation and they all end up singing you know this you know kind of hippie-ish uh 60s song and it's so funny so they're singing lines and whenever they can like they'll uh, uh screech out a, a question or an answer you know in between breaths as fast as it can it is so funny um but like i said like any uh pi movie you know it does have a hint of revenge you know it does turn dark um and so i, I don't know it's just a great mix of comedy of mystery thriller super fun great bill conti score another good la movie um and uh so I watched this three times. Um, so on my third time, I noticed uh, Mandy Patinkin shows up. I was like, is that Mandy Patinkin? Shows up wow. as like a pool boy. He just has one quick line, but his voice is is unmistakable. But he has, you know, kind of uh, bushy hair. And I was like, is that? So I went and looked and sure enough, it's Mandy Patinkin in his very first uh, role, TV or movie. Um Super fun. But anyways, have you seen The Big Fix, Rosalie? I have not, but I did buy this on Blu-ray in one of the sales that happened last year. So it's on my list to watch, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But you talking about it makes me want to see it really soon. It is so fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you got that that disc. It is. Yeah, I cannot recommend it highly enough. All right, let's hear your second pick. My second pick is perhaps the most obvious for people that are fans of Kiss Me Deadly. They might already know about it, but it is Repo Man, which came out in 1984, directed by Alex Cox. And Alex Cox is on the record as one of the biggest fans ever of Kiss Me Deadly. So he will even talk about how he basically ripped off parts of it for (laughs) Repo Man. Um, Basically, the story which stars Harry Dean Stanton, RIP, Emilio Estevez, and a number of other people. Um, It does center on the world of guys that work as repo men. It starts out with this young punk rocker named Otto Maddox, which I love that name. Definitely a play on words, I think. (laughs) Um, And he gets pulled over by a cop and, you know, he's, he's trying to like get away from his, his girlfriend who's left him for his best friend. And he's just kind of like wandering the streets and this guy named Bud, who is played by Harry Dean Stanton, offers him 25 bucks to drive a car around. And um, then he gets kind of pulled into this world of being a repo man. But there's a lot more to it than that. This movie has some supernatural elements, including uh, a trunk that glows. So that's one of the uh, okay. homages. The movie also opens with the backwards credit scroll, which was definitely a direct rip from <laughs> Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, yeah. Let me stop you there real quick. I. I thought for sure something was wrong with the copy I was watching. When I was watching Kiss Me Deadly, I was like, this is, is this right? It's going backwards. So that's, yep. that's right, right? That's intentional. Okay. <laughs> yep. That's how it is. Okay. Yeah. It's 
definitely threw me as well the first time I watched it. But yes, the credits are in fact going backwards and that is on purpose. Okay. Yeah. Just one of the many special quirks of this movie. For sure. So Repo Man does the same thing. And, you know, it came out in 1984 and it's definitely a satire of a different part of the atomic age, right? When, you know, Russia was again a threat and we were dealing Mm. with the Reagan administration and the economy and consumerism. And this movie picks up on all of those things and very interesting and funny ways. It's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's one of my favorite, favorite movies and has a great soundtrack, some great early LA punk. Uh, The circle jerks appear in it, for example, and there's a lot of great lines. And if you love Harry Dean Stanton and you have never seen this movie, you absolutely must see it immediately. Yeah, I. Uh, this is one of my movie shames. I've never seen Repo Man, believe it or not. Oh, my God. You've got to watch it now. You'll uh, see the connections. Absolutely. Oh, cool. Well, that I, I had no idea. So uh, that makes me even more excited. Yeah, there's, you know, whenever sales pop up, um, you know, I always have, like, for instance, the Criterion sale. I have a list on Letterboxd of, uh, you know, telling me, okay, when the sale pops up, this, these are the discs you're going to buy. Um, and it changes constantly. But, you know, hearing about, you know, especially when actually talking to someone about a movie such as Repo Man, I mean, pushes that way up the list for the for the Criterion disc. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I need to see it. I can't believe I've never seen it before. Well, I'm excited that you get to watch at least two new movies, maybe based on these uh, double feature pairings. What's your second pick? Okay, uh, staying in the 70s, staying with a P.I., um, getting a little sexier with Burt Reynolds. Um, uh, Seamus from 1973, written by Barry Beckerman and directed by Buzz Kulik, uh, who, of course, did Bad Ronald and Brian, you know, big TV guy, uh, Brian Song. Uh, But yeah, this is Burt. This is uh, Diane Cannon. Good God. Uh, And this is John P. Ryan um, in he's like third build and he's in maybe five minutes of the movie in the strangest role. John P. Ryan plays a, like an army general or Colonel who has made a John P. Ryan has made a serious character choice to play this man as a Cajun. And it is, uh, super distracting. Um, but that's okay. So anyways, this is, uh, Seamus is about Seamus McCoy, played by Burt Reynolds. Uh, he's suave because he's Burt Reynolds. He's philandering. Uh, he's a PI. He operates out of a pool hall um, and uses the barflies kind of as, as his receptionists and secretaries. Um, he's got this one guy who is obviously on the spectrum who um, all he does is like recite uh, stats from like baseball or boxing or concerts or whatever. He just recites stats. And, uh, so he uses this guy kind of as Mike uses Velda, um, to kind of go out and, you know, do some dirty work anyway. So the movie, uh, straight up cold opens, no, uh, you know, production logo, nothing cold open with somebody jumping through a skylight into into a bedroom and this couple sits up in their bed and this person torches this couple with a flamethrower 
Oh my God. Like that's a cold open. And you're thinking, wait a minute, is this like the seventies Burt Reynolds? Like this is supposed to be kind of goofy and fun, right? Uh, the, you know, this is a year after, uh, deliverance. This is the same year as, uh, white lightning. So it's not quite getting into goofy Burt territory. Um, you know, he's still pretty serious around this time. Although, uh, Seamus is, you know, he's, you know, he's Burt Reynolds for God's sakes. But anyway, so, so that's how the movie, it cold opens with these people burning to death and this guy steals diamonds. Okay. And so, uh, and then it cuts to Burt sleeping with this woman on a pool table in his loft apartment and his phone rings and he, he does a little, he pulls this like pole chain thing and it lowers from the ceiling. Uh, and he, he, you know, talks to him on the phone. And he's like, okay, um, you want to see me? I think you got the wrong person. And he goes out to see this guy at this fancy, uh, mansion. And it's the guy who's been robbed and he wants to hire Bert to either find the diamonds and, or find this killer. Um, and so he, as, as Seamus gets deeper into the case, he starts to realize, okay, this is going even deeper than I want to go. Um, but of course he runs into Diane Cannon and uh, just like anyone would, you do her bidding, whatever she says, because <laughs> my God, uh, yeah. she's absolutely beautiful. Um, and then, you know, again, a revenge plot comes into play here. And uh, it's just, I don't know. It's so fun. This is... One of those movies that I can uh, come back to on a yearly basis. I mm. bought it on a Mill Creek, oh, you know, one of their like four movie discs, uh, not on Blu-ray, but, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, I kind of want, I would love to have a Blu-ray of it, but also I don't want to see it cleaned up at all. You know, it's it's yeah. gritty and grimy enough. Um, but anyways, it's super fun. Uh, it's a sexy movie. Um, it's Bert does this and it's obviously not Bert. It's a stuntman, but there's this point where he jumps from this, I mean, 20 foot wall. It's gotta be 20 foot wall jumps from the top of it and like clings onto, he's going to like cling onto a tree, but the stuntman clings onto like the, like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree and I mean straight down like slams into the ground and I had to watch that on repeat uh after getting this DVD so I had uh, you know on my big TV and I had to watch it three or four times because this guy literally like just <clears throat> hits the ground so fucking hard it's crazy anyways the movie's really fun Rosalie have you ever seen Seamus I have not. So you're giving me at least two movies I need to watch too. So I'm excited. I have not, I think I've heard of it, but I don't think I've seen a copy of it, you know, just lying around. So I'm going to have to look for that one. Perfect. Yeah. It's super fun. If if you like Bert, you know, it's a, uh, I don't know anyone who doesn't like Bert. So. Yeah. I mean, you have to, I think that's the law. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Let's hear your third and final movie. My third and final movie is actually one that came out a couple years before Kiss Me Deadly. It's another noir, and it's from Samuel Fuller, and that movie is Pick Up on South Street. Hmm. So this one is another one that 
plays into some of those Cold War fears. And Samuel Fuller is, again, another famous director, writer who also went against, you know, a lot of the more conservative uh, ideas of his day and was more progressive and championed progressive causes. You know, he had movies where, you know, there were multiracial couples and things like that. So he certainly was more progressive for his time. And I think this movie from that angle makes it unique from certain other noirs that tended to be all about the cult of, you know, J. Edgar Hoover. So this one stars Richard Woodmark, who is one of my favorite noir heroes. He's one of those actors that is just so distinctive looking that, you know, when you see him, you just automatically associate him with film noir. And he is a pickpocket in this movie. And one of the opening scenes is him on a New York City train and he's, you know, stealing a wallet from this woman named Candy, played by Jean Peters. And it turns out Candy is um, a prostitute and her husband, boyfriend, I'm not exactly sure the relationship, who tends to be an abusive dude, um, it seems has been trafficking some secrets to the communists, some, you know, military secrets or, you know, weapons, things like that. And so it turns out there was an envelope in Candy's wallet that had those secrets on it. And now, you know, both the cops and also the crooks are after wherever those secrets have gone. And so this movie becomes about the relationships between, you know, Jean Peters and Richard Woodmark's character as she has to track him down. And then there's also an amazing performance by Thelma Ritter, hmm. who is just incredible in this movie. She's a woman who, you know, doesn't have a lot of money. And so she's an informant for the cops, but she, you know, doesn't want to give up the information to the wrong people. And so she's willing to pay a pretty high price for that. And, she just has some really incredible scenes, which reminded me in some ways of the spirit of Kiss Me Deadly, where you're seeing people who are lesser known by society and lesser loved by society, but they're still people that are good at heart in a lot of ways, just doing what they have to do to get by. And there's a lot in my mind that links this to Kiss Me Deadly, just because, again, it's playing into those fears that people had at that time of, can I trust the people around me to be who they say they are? And little things that you think shouldn't matter, little actions or little things you overlook, like accidentally losing your wallet end up having these global consequences. And so everything has higher stakes. And I think that that sense that you don't know what little action is going to have a bigger reaction is something that was common in this time period of, of suspicion about other people in the, in the light of the blacklist, for example. So it's a movie that I think has links to Kiss Me Deadly. It's also just very entertaining. And Samuel Fuller is one of those directors that I'll watch anything he makes because he also has a tendency like Aldrich to go a little over the top at times. Um, if you've seen Black <laughs> Order, you know what I'm talking about. But he's he's not afraid to tackle difficult subjects on film. And, you know, whether that's dealing with racism and White Dog or, you know, dealing with, again, like, you know, various racial issues or, you know, taking on things in like the naked kiss where it's actually talking about pedophilia. I mean, he's a guy that will go there and I appreciate that in a director. Yeah. I love Sam Fuller. Um, you know, uh, I haven't loved, you know, every movie of his that I've seen, but I love his, 
there are certain filmmakers uh, who I will always champion or follow or be a fan of uh, because of their approach to filmmaking. And I think you nailed it on the head that Sam Fuller, like he, he was a, an equal opportunity player and he wanted to tell the stories that it really mattered. Um, but told them, you know, wouldn't smack you over the face, uh, with ideologies or, or political statements or things like that. He'd make it entertaining. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, shot corridor part of cult movies, uh, is, you know, a, a really good example. This I've never, uh, heard of this pick up on South street. Um, again, uh, need to see it. Yeah. It's funny because I already I had picked this movie before I started doing, you know, the the requisite at least look at Wikipedia for it. And I found a review from Bosley Crowther when this movie came out that said it looks very much as though someone is trying to out bulldoze Mickey Spillane in 20th Century Fox's pickup on South Street. And I was like, well, I guess I'm on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a uh, man. Anytime. um anyone recommends another Sam Fuller to me. I'm like, I'm, I'm all over it. Love it. Yeah. And this is probably my favorite of the ones I've seen. I has uh, a deep catalog, so I haven't seen everything. Oh uh, yeah. So much stuff, so much stuff. Um, and, and so varied too. Like the man had his hand, like he was, he wasn't, uh, married to one specific type of story or genre. You know, he was all over the place. I love it. Yeah. I think he just liked a good story. Yep. That's all it is. That's that's and I think that's that's what makes a good filmmaker. Story first. Uh, doesn't matter. Are we are we going to be funny? Are we going to be scary? Are we going to be sad? Is are we going to be on horseback? Whatever is the story good? Okay, then let's move on from there. And I think he was all about that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for my third movie, uh, again staying in the seventies, nineteen seventy six. This is uh, written by Ed Waters and John D. McDonald, uh, who wrote uh, the novel. This is directed by Robert Klaus, who directed, of course, Enter the Dragon, which we talk about on episode three of Cult Movies uh, with Mike Scott. I'm talking about uh, Darker Than Amber, starring Rod Taylor and Theodore Bickle, Susie Kendall, uh, (laughs) William Smith with Stark white hair uh is in this have you seen darker than amber rosalie i have not okay so uh no blu-ray uh i i I don't know if there's a dvd uh but it is on youtube i'm not a you know proponent of saying hey go to youtube and and watch movies uh but you know if that's the only way then so be it so anyways darker than amber um follows travis mcgee who is played by rod taylor and Travis is a part-time PI, and he's a full-time beach bum. So one night, he's out fishing with his friend Meyer, played by Theodore Bickle, and they see a woman being thrown off of a bridge. And so Travis dives in and pulls her back up. They pull her into the boat, and they she's, like, you know, bound and tied and obviously trying to be murdered. So they take her back to the houseboat that they live in on, and, uh, you know, resuscitate her, get her well, and uh, immediately Travis falls in love with her. Of course. <laughs> and um, 
over time they learn, okay, this woman was part of this prostitution scheme uh, that was run on cruise ships where these women would be paired up with a man. Uh, the women would then lure like a rich older gentleman to his cabin and then the, the male half of this scheme comes in and beats the guy up and they steal the guy's money and, you know, jewelry and all that junk. Um, but the partner she's partner uh, that she's with, uh, played by William Smith is this like, you know, muscle man, uh, kind of wrestling looking dude, William Smith. He's, he's super tall in the first place, but he's like ripped and terrifying looking in this movie and so he would end up, instead of just beating these guys up, he'd end up killing these guys and then throwing them overboard on the cruise ship. And so she wanted out, and he says, absolutely not, and knocks her out, ties her up, and tries to kill her by throwing her off. That's where the movie begins. Rod Taylor rescues her. And so it becomes a thing of trying to find him and and uncover this this prostitution ring scheme thing. And then of course, revenge comes into play here. Um, and it, you know, <sighs> I heard about this movie from, uh, Elric on pure cinema and he, mm -hmm. like, he just went nuts over it. And it, I mean, it is super fun. Um, great score, incredible opening song, uh, is you know it's it's just very 70s kind of soulful uh you know kind of a, a rock and roll i don't know it's just it's so so good uh jane russell makes an appearance or two as sort of like the rich uh single madam who lives uh on another houseboat next to <laughs> rod taylor's um it's got this kind of made for tv feel and maybe that's because <laughs> the rip that I watched on, on, excuse me, on YouTube was ripped off of, uh, a, from TV in England. Uh, but it, it, I mean, it really does have a made for TV feel until, you know, the swears show up and, you know, you see some, some boobies and, uh, but it's shot on location in Florida and in the Bahamas. And so, you know, I think movies shot on location in Florida are, really special because you know you got new york chicago la the big city metropolitan feel or you got you know something out in the in the west you know a western you're you're out in a dusty landscape uh or you're in a small town there's nothing like florida though like mm -hmm. you, you can just feel the humidity as you're watching movies shot in florida right um so anyways, uh, it's really interesting, the story behind it, where it, because it, it's stuck, uh, you know, on YouTube, basically. The producer is in jail for killing two of his ex-wives. Oh, wow. And he has, you know, probably has the rights wrapped up uh, somehow. And then the distribution company had sold all of its assets to Warner's. So, you know, it's lost in the fold and, you know, hopefully someday it'll come out um, in a wonderful restored version. But more than likely, it's just going to be lost forever, which is super unfortunate. Um, and the other thing about all these 70s movies is that I love the clothes. I love the music. I love, you know, dirty old New York. Um, uh, 
dirty old San Francisco, dirty old LA, whatever. Like just, I, I feel like I was supposed to be born in 1950 and I was supposed to experience the seventies in my twenties. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I really missed out because my mom was my, you know, of course my parents were born in, in the early fifties. And so they got to do that and they got to have lots of fun. Uh, but here we are stuck in a pandemic that seems never ending. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, ha- have you, so you've never seen darker than Amber, right? No, I have not. I had never even heard of it before. Okay. So I'm excited to do the, whatever legwork I have to, to find it on, on YouTube or wherever else it might be. Yeah. I'm sad that it might not ever get a real release, but you know, sometimes that adds to the cult status. Oh, the, for uh, sure. Right. So you know, it just plays into the whole theme. Yeah, well, yeah, you look at, like, Letterboxd, um, and that's kind of how I sort of do my picks. You know, I don't want to pick a movie where it has, you know, 100,000 people have seen it on Letterboxd. Um, but, you know, like, Darker Than Amber has something like, I don't know, 500 people have seen it, and that's super yeah. low for Letterboxd. So, you know, um, it, you know that The Hunt, uh, you know makes you know it brings with it the cult status so um but uh, i'll send you a link after this recording okay (laughs) please do yeah it's it's super fun i think you'll really enjoy it um well rosalie thank you so much this was a ton of fun i'd love to do it again with you sometime if you'd be down i would absolutely be down this was super fun awesome uh where can people find you on the internet well you can read my writing at fthismovie.com occasionally and you can also follow me on twitter at rosalie lewis i also um co-host the formerly criterion collectors we just rebranded so now we're calling ourselves blu-ray boutique podcast so that we can expand to not just the criterion collection but some of the other specialty labels as well so we put out a monthly podcast and that's a lot of fun and um hopefully you'll be able to hear me occasionally on this show so i'm i'm loving it Heck yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donnelly on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. That's A K D O N E L L Y. Um, rate, review, all that good stuff. And tell your friends about us. Uh, we will see you next time. Rosalie, thanks a lot. This was a ton of fun. It sure was. Thanks so much, Anthony.